First uh, John chapter two, verses seven through eleven it says, "Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining." Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, thank you guys um, for allowing me to be here this morning and then also for allowing me to be away uh, it was a great trip to Africa. Um, I am so glad to be home, though. It's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a both-and situation. It was a great trip. Uh, there is much to be said about it. I don't have the time to do it here, but if you have any questions or you'd like to know anything, uh, anybody that's been on a mission trip knows when you get back, you are willing to talk about it for days on end and tell every detail about it, and you expect those people to react like, oh, it was so awesome, but then they weren't really there, and they don't react that way, and then you get disappointed, and anyway, this is the whole thing. So, anything you'd like to know, please come ask me. I will be glad to tell you. If at any point today I say something, and then I do this or this, it's because for a week, everything I said had to be translated into two languages, and sometimes I may pause awkwardly, and you're like, what's he waiting on? I'm waiting on the French guy to talk, and then the other guy to talk. So I'll try not to do that, but thank you for letting me be away. Thank you for letting me be back. Um, it was weird being away for two weeks. I was watching Pastor Eric's sermon for MC this week, and it was like I was watching a podcast of like some distant church that I've never been to. It was, it was very... Strange feelings. So thank you guys for being a church that I actually miss going to, uh, and I mean that wholeheartedly. So, all right, today we will be continuing through First John as we just read. Uh, John wrote this letter for a specific church, specific group of people, and yet I also think he wrote it specifically for us to hear today and ongoing through the generations. God is sovereign in these words, and it is speaking to us today. However, we do know that it is written to believers We've talked about this for a few weeks, but just as a reminder, this letter is not how to become a Christian 101, it is how to tell you are a Christian 101. So if you are already at least claiming to believe in Jesus, then how do you know you really mean it is, is more the, the point of this letter, to give you assurance that you do truly mean it. John wants to give assurance to a group of people that are surrounded by teaching, and it's convincing teaching. It's not this crazy talk that we hear so many times on social media and things. It's convincing teaching from people that were around these other believers that were was saying, Jesus can't be God and man. Jesus can't be both of those. He's, he's one or the other. That means you have to do some other things to make sure you're in the faith, to make sure you're saved. It very much depends on, yeah, Jesus did some good stuff, but it very much depends on your behavior. And some of these True believers were starting to, to waver or to wonder, it, is that how it works? And John wants to give assurance, no, you cannot have assurance in your salvation if it is based on what you are doing on any given day. As we can all attest to, 
there's some days you're like, man, Jesus, come on back. I'm doing awesome today. You'll take me with you for sure today. And then other days you're like, well, I hope he waits at least one more day because today ain't the day I'm going. And John's saying, no, no, no. That's not how it doesn't. It's not this roller coaster ride of I'm in the belief, I'm in the faith, I'm out of the faith. It is assurance because it all depends on Jesus. And the thing is, is that sounds crazy to us to make it to to think it really depends on our behavior each day and our behavior. But that's every other world religion in the world, guys. Like that is every world religion outside of evangelical Christianity is if you are good enough, if your tally marks on the good side outnumber your bad ones, then you should be, no guarantee, you should be okay. You might be okay if God happens to be in a good mood that day when he looks at you. There is no assurance whatsoever in any of these religions because you can never really be sure what God's going to do. And John is there trying to refute this saying, no, 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 believers, Jesus is God, Jesus is man, he is our advocate, he is an example to live by, yes, that's included in there, but he is the only way to be saved, he's the only true light, he's the only true life, and everything else is darkness, every religion, every faith, everything we worship Every, whether it's atheism, whether it's another religion, everything is false and everything is darkness if it is not stating Jesus is the only way. And he's here in 1 John because John, the gospel, written by the same person, has already talked about Jesus the man, Jesus God, Jesus that has done all these things and why we worship him. Now he's just fleshing that out even more as to why we rely on this man that I've wrote about before for our salvation and if you read the gospel of john in first john you see many parallels in language many parallels in the words that are used you it's just a continuation of that book it's it's it, we look at luke and acts as kind of one this is the same way it's just a continuation of the story after jesus has ascended so as we've looked at the past few weeks john is offering us all a few ways to just give us ourselves a test are you really in the faith the first one we saw was simply based on belief. Do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Because some people, the answer to that question is no. So obviously that's the starting point. We've got to get there first. Do you trust Jesus for your salvation? If you're even kind of thinking that you've got something to do with it and it's based on your behaviors and your works and your good deeds and all of these things, you either are mistaken and need tweaking or you are in the darkness. And that's where we've got to make the determination and that's where he starts. We sin, Jesus saves, that's it. Second, last week, do you then, if, if you say yes to the first one, do you obey him? The Bible and Jesus himself in the Gospels is very clear. If you love Jesus, you will obey him. And, as we talked about last week, you will want to obey him. It's not, a, I'm not saying it never is, but it is mostly should not be this begrudging, I will. Sometimes, man, you just got to do it. It's going to be a begrudging, I don't really want to do this, but Jesus told me to. But if that's your life, first of all, that will not last. And second of all, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that our hearts should change because we love Jesus so much. And we follow him and obey him, not out of fear, but out of love. See, it's not out of a dictatorship. Dictator does not entertain questions. You don't go up to a dictator and ask him why he's doing things. Or, why did you do it this way? Unless you have a death wish, because that is usually how dictators deal with questions. Because they know questions will poke holes in the authority they are claiming. 
Jesus, on the other hand, ask away. Ask respectfully, but ask me questions. I will gladly answer those because I know my truth will hold up. He's not concerned that you're going to poke a hole in his authority or poke a hole in his truth because there are no holes to be poked in his truth. So he gladly reads Psalms. There's plenty of questions in there. David is begging God for answers. It's okay to ask them. So today, we will look at another test for faith, another way to give an honest look at. The main question of the entire letter is, how do I really know that I trust Jesus for my salvation? Today, more specifically is, do I love like Jesus loves? This is a test that is, or a text that is, it's super straightforward. It says what it says. That presents two problems for a pastor or a preacher. Is one, it just says what it says. So sometimes you're like, man, just read it. Like, here, it says this. Go do that. And then other times, it, and that's the case here, is it says that. And yes, you could read it and just go home. But then there's also literally no way to exhaustively cover it. It says so much here that some of you may be thinking, well, he's going to go this direction. This direction. I told Pastor Eric, he was like, I love this text. I was like, yeah, I don't know if it's going to go the way you want it to go. Because I don't know that it went the way I wanted it to go. So if you have a preconceived idea, it may not go that way. But re remember, God's word speaks volumes upon volumes upon volumes. So here we are. Um, quick poll. Where do you find the words, exact words, love your neighbor as yourself? Old Testament or New Testament? Who says old? One person. All right, good. Uh, come on, I've been in Africa where they talked more than I did in the audience. So who says Old Testament? Two people, three people. Who says New Testament? A few people. Okay, who huh, says both? That should have been all of you. It's both. Okay. Anyway, that went great, by the way. This is perfect. Uh, old, <laughs> old or new? Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus is the Old Testament for some of you who may be like, where's that at? It's Old Testament. Then in a couple of places, like Mark 12.30-31, Matthew 22.39-40, Jesus is quoted as saying, Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also combines these things with Deuteronomy 6, 5 and says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your, whole, your soul, and your strength and says that upon these two things, loving God with everything and loving others as God loves, love your neighbor as yourself, all the law and the prophets hang on these things. Meaning the Ten Commandments. Instead of going, I'm going to follow one through ten, just follow these two. Love God with everything, love people that way, and you won't do those ten. You won't do so many things that we find ourselves doing. Jesus says that these two are like hinges on a door. You want to walk through the door, the door must be hanging on these two hinges. Love God, love people. So we've seen this command from the Lord Lots of times, for many years, from God the Father in the Old Testament, from Jesus himself in the New Testament, and then we see John get a case of schizophrenia and go, hey, I got an old commandment for you. Just kidding, it's new. Nope, nope, I, it's old. I maybe, nope, it's new. It's both. It's old and new. And for a moment, you're like, I don't know if it's old or new, but I'm going to listen. So 
Why the ambivalence? Why the ambiguity of old versus new? Well, it is interesting in the original Greek, in the New Testament, there are two words for the word new. One word means exactly what you're thinking in regards to time. You have a 2020 version of a car, 2010 version of a car. This one is the new one. It's, it's newer. It is the new version. The second one, however, is in respects to quality, to the novelness of it, to the freshness of it. That word for new is a fresh new idea It's not necessarily brand new, as in you've never seen or heard it before. It is new in its its quality. Think about any movie that comes out nowadays. It's a reboot. We've run out of ideas. Other than Christopher Nolan. He's the only guy doing original stuff. All the other ones. It's like, hasn't Little Women been done like 48 times, and yet it's like the number one movie in America right now? So think about, but what are they doing? It's a new movie but they're just rehashing it in a different way by a different angle. Uh, I grew up uh, singing with, with only a piano, that's for sure. Church of Christ style with uh, an aside on the piano. Um, singing a song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a great song. It really is. Lyrics are good. Lyrics are theologically correct. Love the song. Let, let's rephrase. I liked the song. About nine months ago, I heard Lauren Daigle's version of it, and it changed my life. It is amazing. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because it's faster paced than Church of Christ. Didn't do fast paced. We did very, very this. This was this is a good example. Um, but John, John is not saying here. I'm giving you a new command. You've never heard this before. Let, I'm getting ready to put some truth on you, like you've never heard. No, no, no. He's saying no, no. You've heard these words before, but you're about to hear them differently you've heard them from the beginning either meaning from the beginning long 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 time ago or from the beginning of the time you stepped into this faith either way you've heard this before this is not going to be brand spanking new but what John is telling them and us who have heard these words before you're about to see them or you need to see them in a whole different way they apply in a whole different way now that Jesus has come He changes everything. You see, Jesus said these words and even said that this is exactly how people would know we are his disciples. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus speaking, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Again, not new, you've never heard this before. New in how you now apply it because I'm here. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Remember those words for the rest of the day. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, the new command here, Jesus adds a caveat, and this is where the command becomes new instead of old. Jesus says you must love one another as I have loved you. See, Jesus didn't come just to love us, to give us an example, to care for us. He came to die. He knew this from the beginning. I don't, there's always an argument of whether he knew that as a child or if he somehow supernaturally blocked that out. I don't know how long exactly he carried it around in his human form, but from eternity past, he knew this was the plan. For millions of years, he knew this was the plan. So Jesus did not come just to show us a good way or be a good prophet. Yes, all good teacher. All of those are included, 
But without the death part, without the resurrection part, he's just another guy. He came to do all of those things. But he backed up his actions. When he says, I love you, he backs up his actions by going to a cross, dying for our sins even though he was sinless. And he died for us while commanding us to love like this. Like I'm showing you as he died. See, even Jesus was not allowed to say something and not back it up. And to not live it out. And to not prove it. Why do we think we can get away with it? Why do I think I can get away with it? And this is what 1 John is getting at. You cannot say you are something and not show it. You say you're good at basketball and we get on the court and you can't dribble. I don't think you're good at basketball anymore. That's just the way it goes. But Christianity, for some reason, you can just say you are something. Never dribble. Dribble. I don't know what that would be in Christianity. But you never do anything Christian. But people still have to believe you because doggone it, it's my truth and I said it. You cannot say you are something without showing it. You cannot say you live in the light but then keep things hidden and not confess them as we see earlier in this letter. You cannot say you love God but then you don't love him enough to do the things he told you to do as we saw earlier in this letter. You cannot say you are in the light but then you hate other people. You cannot say that you are living a life for Christ but then not doing the second thing on his list. Love God, love people. I'll do this one, but I'm not going to do that one. Or I'm only going to do that one halfway or somewhat or to some people. It doesn't work that way. Jesus wasn't allowed to say he loves us without showing it. Why do we think we can do that? If you are not loving others, you are not loving Jesus. Simple as that. So you can say you're doing this one and not doing this one, but that means you're not doing either one of them. This is where the newness of the command comes in, the fresh part. We have all heard actions speak louder than words. This is where we see that. John is making it clear these things are mutually exclusive. You cannot say you love Jesus while going about life the same as the world. Saying you love Jesus but not allowing that to affect your relationships with other people. All other people. It affects everything about you. If you are all in for Jesus, you must be all in for Jesus. That affects everything you cannot say one while doing another thing and expect to trick people, although sometimes you can, but you definitely shouldn't expect to trick God. Imagine saying to me that you love me, but you hate my children. I love you, Justin. You're awesome. I hate your kids. I'm not saying my kids are perfect, okay? They get on my nerves too. Just like they probably get on yours. Nora, the other day, I told her to do something. I think it was pick up her crayons. At this point, you'll hear by the end of the story, I don't even remember what the command was. But I said, hey, Nora, as soon as you get your socks back on, come over here and do this thing. We'll assume it's pick up the crayons. She put her socks on. She's five. She got distracted. I wasn't mad about the distraction. But I said, Nora, I said, when you get your socks on, come pick up the crayons. And she said, what do you think I was about to do? I looked at her like Medea, except for the black man dressed up as a black grandma part. But I looked at her like Medea, as in, oh, no, you didn't. And then she gave me one of these. Which, A, I know where she got that from, and it's me, okay? Uh, I, I, so I can't really judge her that harshly. That's my fault. But she did. She, she was like... Because I looked at her like, 
did you just? She was like, and then she went and picked up her crayons. So I was cool with the following the command part, but it got on my nerves a little bit, and I had to remind myself that I love Jesus as I handled the shrug part. And Judah, don't even get me started, if you're one of those dumb people that pray for patience, don't pray for it anymore. Just come try to put my son to sleep at night, and you'll get it. Or you won't, and you'll really reveal you're living in the dark. This kid, it takes forever to put him to sleep, first of all. But, that, ooh, anyway, he will, he will be dead asleep, like in my arms, like, oh, yeah. I, I don't clap, but I got him. I won. The battle is mine. I put him down. He rolls over into his sleeping position. I put the blanket on. I can even hear little snores coming out of his nose. He's asleep. I walk out of the room. I go down the stairs. I, before I can even get in my bedroom, I hear the gate rattling at the top of the stairs. And he's going, Daddy! Like he's just won the Olympics. And he's expecting me to go drape a gold medal around his neck. He's so proud of himself that he's tricked me into thinking he's asleep. And now he's wide awake. So I go upstairs and I show him what he's really won. Which is just me holding him longer to put him to sleep. But <laughs> sounded like I'm really going to really do something. But my kids are annoying sometimes. Your kids are also annoying sometimes. I won't tell those stories. But don't tell me you hate them. We're going to have problems you come up to me and say, I hate your kids. Now, you come tell me the story about Nora being a smart aleck. I'm going to be like, yeah, that's annoying. I'll have a talk with her. But don't tell me you hate them. And this is something that people clearly thought they could get away with, or John would not be specifically rebuking it. You see those warning labels on products, right? Don't light this on fire in your hair. And you're like, why would anybody do that? But clearly someone out there in the world has lit that on fire in their hair and that's why the command is here same thing if these people weren't even remotely thinking that it was okay to say I love God but I hate other people then John wouldn't bring it up he would just go on to the next thing he tells them if you are claiming to be in the light you cannot hate your brothers you cannot hate your sisters or you are firmly in the dark you are walking in the dark. You are living in the dark. You are, the word he uses, abiding in the dark. The word abide and the word love are all over this book. If you have your own Bible, what I would encourage you to do while we're preaching through this, I would encourage you to read 1 John literally every day while we're preaching through this. But that may be a, a I don't know, that may be a, a weight around your neck you don't want. So I would encourage you at least to read the whole book of 1 John every week before we preach on it again the next week. Every week. It doesn't take that long. It's not that long of a book. I promise you you'll get something out of it every single time you read all the way through it. But as you're doing that, because I know all of you are going to do that, as you are doing that, circle, highlight, underline, square, do, draw hearts around. I don't care. But the word abide and the word love. And just see if your pen runs out of ink. Because it is over and over and over and over again. And this tells me something. Those two things go together. You want to abide in God, you abide in love. You want to abide in the light, you abide in love. You remain steadfast. The word means to remain firm in, to plant your foundation in. The word abide means I ain't moving. This is where I'm at. I'm staying here. 
This is not some flippant, I'm just here for now. Abiding means I am, I'm here and I'm staying here. So if you are to abide in God, abide in the light and remain there, John is clear, we must be diligent in love of God first. We must love God first. But loving other people. John is saying these things are mutually exclusive. Light and dark do not go together. Love and hate do not go together. In life, there are really not that many things that are mutually exclusive. We like to pretend that there are. We like to live in this everything is black and white world. But there's, let's just be honest, there's a lot of gray in our world. There's not gray here. Light and dark are mutually exclusive. Any light whatsoever, darkness scatters, darkness flees, darkness loses, darkness is gone. This means that love and hate cannot coincide. The, the connection is clear. Light equals love, darkness equals hate. Love and hate cannot coincide. You cannot say, I'm all in for Jesus, but I'm going to be a little bit over here. Just a little. I don't hate everybody. I just hate that guy because he's a jerk and he's mean to me and he says things and he does this. In just a few verses, John bluntly says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is another text. I do not have to tell you what that means. And yet there's no way one sermon is going to cover it or two or probably three. There's too much packed into that one sentence even though we all know exactly what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. This means we must be in Jesus, not dabbling in civilian pursuits, as Paul tells Timothy not to do. This is what Jesus is. He, is, he, he causes the mutual exclusivity. He is the light of the world. John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Cool. Jesus is the light of the world. I get that. But guess what? He then delegates that to us. Because he's not still, he's still here, but he's not walking around here as a human. He delegates that to us so we can shine our light so that we bring glory to our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus speaking to his disciples. After he's already, well, I don't know exactly the order, but he said, I am the light of the world at some point in his ministry. And also at some point in his ministry, he looked at his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And don't let the devil... It, that's not in there, I'm just kidding. John is clear that in order to be in Jesus, we must be lights shining in the world. That is why in 1 John, verse 8 here, or chapter 3, verse 8, it says that the light is already shining. Jesus has already shown, if I'm using the tenses right. And he's per se gone. Again, he's not walking around any longer. The light is already shining. It's still shining. Why? Because he's given that light to us. We are now the lights of the world. You ever been in a dark room, like a movie theater, somebody pulls out their phone, people, every person in the room is like, what, what just happened there? There's light. Why? Be again, light always wins over darkness. Even if it's just a little light and it's a whole bunch of darkness, light still wins. They are mutually exclusive. They cannot blend together. Unfortunately, 
in America and in much of the world, as I've now seen. This is exactly what has happened. Charles Spurgeon, over a century ago, said these words. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. He goes on to say, the Bible is not the light to the world. It is the light of the church because the world doesn't read the Bible. The world reads Christians and you are the light of the world. Now, that's not correct. The world should read the Bible, and that should be where they get their truth. But let's just be honest, they don't. They read Christians. What he's saying is not the ideal situation. What he's saying is what is real, what is true. The world doesn't read the Bible, unless they're trying to prove it wrong, usually. They read Christians. We must be willing, then, to stand out, to be weird, to be starkly different, not just a little bit. Something's off about him. No, no, no. They, we need people to be like, what's going on with that guy? Something. Something is happening with that girl over there. I don't even know if I want to be a part of it, but I'm intrigued. I got to ask questions. And that's when we are able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Go home and look at statistics about Christians and non-Christians today and try not to cry. In America but probably all over the world. In categories like sexual ethics, morality, money management, giving, parenting styles, finances, personal habits, time spending, hobbies. The list goes on. Professing Christians don't really look that much different than the world. Here, I'm going to give you a few stats, just really quick. All I want you to do is, as you hear these, say, ask yourself and try to answer the question, is this true of the world or is this true of Christians on this survey? Okay? That's all you got to do. You don't have to raise your hand, just in your own head. 61% of people, either in the world or Christians, that's for you to decide, say premarital sex is fine. The divorce rate is, people say it's 50%. It's actually something like 35%. But 35% divorce rate. 37% of people world or Christian, do not give to a church. 6% of people, world or Christian, tithe regularly, give regularly. 55% of people, world or Christian, pray every day. 19% of people, world or Christian, read the Bible every day. And listen to this caveat of that. 20% never read it at all. Not at all. None. They admit on the survey, I never read the Bible. Which is which? Think really hard. And the sad news is that the answer on every one of those is both. They match. The world is exactly the same as professing Christians in every one of those I just said. Even non-Christians somewhere are saying they read the Bible every day. Even non Now, they don't give to a church. They give to charities and such. But the same amount of people, are they're doing the same things. We are called over and over and over to stand out, to be salt and light, to not be conformed to the world. And it seems like that's all we've done. 
is we've just conformed to the world. We look the same as the world. John tells us one of the main ways here to stand out is to truly have love for one another and to allow that to manifest in our relationships and our behavior towards one another. Not just say, I love you guys, but then you do absolutely nothing to actually show it. It's a verb. It requires action. And here's the key. We don't love people for people's sake. We don't love them just for their sake. Now, yes, they benefit all of that. But if that's the case, then we will quit loving them when they act a fool, which clearly happens all the time. But we love them for Christ's sake, to give him glory, to show him as different, to show him as the way, the truth, and the life, to show him as the light, life, and love. Because the love we have for people is so strong, not for people's sake, but people are going to say, man, you still, you still doing that for that person? You still forgiving that person? You still love that person? And we can say, yeah, but it ain't for him because that gets on my nerves. And I don't like it and it hurts. But Jesus calls me to live a different way. By the way, do you know Jesus? We're, we're, people are not going to get saved by our actions. They're going to be saved by the gospel. But our actions can lead to a chance to share the gospel. Because if we're not looking any different, they don't ask questions. They just go, there's another person living life in America, not reading their Bible every day, never reading their, whatever all the stats are. When we keep our eyes on Jesus instead of others and their actions and how everything affects us, it makes it that much easier to love people because we are emulating the one we are gazing upon. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we just try to be like him. It doesn't really, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. Things happen. Somebody breaks in my house, that's going to change my day. They steal all my stuff. Whether I replace it all or not, it does change my day. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, then we can react to that situation as Jesus would react to that situation. Here's the thing, no one here that I know of, and we have a pretty large group today, would say they hate anyone else in the room. I don't think. If they do, I don't know anything about it. I'm not saying everybody here is your favorite person in the world, but no one, there's no animosity that I know of that's major here that people literally would say, and I hate that person even though they're sitting in the pew next to me. But I'm convinced here that the opposite of love, it, while the opposite of love is hate, I think what leads to hate and the actual antithesis of love is selfishness. If I am constantly thinking, how does this affect me? How does this negatively or positively affect me? What good is this going to be for me? And I only love others based on that. I will never do it because love is costly. It costs something. And that's not even if you love like Jesus loves. That's just love in general the worldly love still costs something. You've got to put yourself out there. You've got to be vulnerable. You may get hurt. People are going to turn on you, backstab you. But think about it. If it's all about how it affects me or affects you, who's flying to Africa? Nobody. That's a long flight and your plane might crash. I can come up, I can come up with a million reasons not to go to Africa. We've got a bunch of foster kids and adopted kids in a small community of people, not one of you would have done that if it was selfish. Heck, 
We wouldn't even have our own kids if it was a selfish decision. Let's be honest, because they affect you negatively and positively. There's some joy. My kids are awesome. I want that on record. My kids are awesome. Okay, don't cut that out. No one would volunteer anywhere. Hope House would be volunteerless, which some days we are anyway, but most of the time we got people that come. No one would do that. Because it would cost them something and their selfish desires would overtake that. And we, here's the thing is if that's really how we're supposed to make decisions, I would understand. Why would you do that? No marriage would ever work. Some of them don't work anyway. But if you're making decisions based on selfishness, it's not going to work. Selfishness makes us not do anything. It breeds inaction. Inaction then breeds hatred. So yes, love and hate are the opposites. But selfishness, thinking of yourself all the time, is what causes that to happen. And this is why Jesus made the caveat to love like I loved. Jesus didn't make any selfish decisions. Selflessly, with no regard for ourselves and our own interests, is what Jesus is commanding here. This doesn't mean you go play in traffic hoping the guy that hits you gets saved because you're holding up a sign that says Jesus. Okay? I'm not saying you just recklessly live hoping to die. But maybe you do go somewhere where terrorist attacks happen while you're there. Maybe you do go live in a place called India that most of us have never been to for years. Maybe you do go talk to the Muslim friend or the atheist friend that you know is going to mock you and mock you and mock you and mock you for what you believe because you think God's powerful enough to overcome the mocking. It hurts and I don't like it. But too many times we won't even talk to somebody who's not even going to mock us. They just might not agree with us. So we selfishly make the decision and that is saying that person's going to hell and I hate them so much that I'm cool with it because I'm not going to speak the words that would drag them up out of hell because I am selfish and I'm speaking to myself this week after I just got back from Africa I should be on the most evangelistic time of my life a guy opened the door like he might as well have like slung the door open for the gospel and I could have just hey do you know Jesus and I kept lifting weights because I was tired and I selfishly just wanted to put my headphones in and, and not talk to him. Now the beauty of it all is God will bring, he's a regular, he'll be back. I'll get a chance again, I hope. We must do things in a way that is different from the world and I sure didn't that day. I sure didn't that day. The world is good at loving people who are just like them or who offer them some benefit. The world's great at this. Like-minded individuals. This is how we all choose our friends. This is how we choose our spouse. But it, what if we begin asking ourselves questions like how and with whom, or who, whatever is right, with who can I express and reveal God's glory most and then allow that to be how you choose friends? And allow that to be how you can't change your spouse. Sorry, guys. But if you're unmarried in here, you can pick one. You can pick who you date. What if you ask that question? Not who's the prettiest or the cutest. Not who makes me laugh the most. Not who I have the most in common with. How do I reveal God's glory most? Would this change your MySpace top, top eight? Some of y'all are like, what is MySpace? 
Tom would definitely be out of there, right? Some of y'all still are like, who's Tom? It's fine. But would this change who you spend your time with? Would this change where you spend your time? Especially in the wintertime when we just like to get home and that's where we at because we're hibernating. We're like bears. The selfless love must be extended to all. And here's the thing. This is no new commandment. Even the Israelites were told to love the sojourners that were among them, correct? Welcome them in. If they are willing to obey me, welcome them in as one of your own. Jesus talks with the woman at the well. She was not like him in every way. He saves and redeems the woman caught in adultery, also not like him in any way. We are told to love our enemies. We are told that. So it's not just the people in this room we're supposed to love. It's everyone. We can no longer be satisfied with the status quo thinking that it is good enough, thinking that that will draw people to Christ or draw people to ask us questions because it will not. Because we look just like everyone else. Remember what Spurgeon correctly said. People read Christians. The gospel is what saves people. But they will not be drawn to believe the gospel when the very ones who claim to believe it are not willing to live it. We must love others. The word he uses here for love when he is commanding us to love other people is the agape love. The type of love Jesus had. The unconditional, no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. Notice what it does not say. It does not say whoever loves his brother that he has most in common with or the brother that doesn't annoy you or the one you like the best or the ones that are not quirky and socially awkward or the ones who don't have a rough past or the ones who look like you or the ones who walk out their faith like you or the ones that everyone likes or the ones that share the same values with you or the ones that have the same socioeconomic status as you or the ones who align politically with you or the ones who offer you the most in return, the ones who have the kids the same age as you, the ones that play on your kid's soccer team, the ones who never tend to disagree or argue with you, the ones you love that love you back, the ones who think highly of you. None of that's on the list. It says to love them. And as we've established, the command is to love like Jesus loved. And Jesus loved the less thans, the have-nots, the never-will-haves, the unlovable, the unlikable, the smart, the dumb, the fast, the slow, the hardworking, the lazy, the smart aleck, the guy you don't like, but you can't really figure out why. That there's just something about that girl, the dirty, the dishonest, the addicts, the tax collectors, the tax evaders, the pimps, the prostitutes, the can't keep a secret, the lame, the deaf, the blind, the black, the white, the brown, the everything in between, the lowly, the depressed, the anxious, the ones who sin differently than you, the ones who sin the same as you, the ones who sin... Uh, who have it all together, who can't just get it together, the washed up, the tired, the broken, the needy, the rich, the poor, the Democrat, the Republican, the terrorist, the atheist, the backstabbers, the weak, the strong, the sad, the glad, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the thieves, the greedy, the gossips, the gluttons, the swindlers, the liars, and such were some of you. And such were some of me. Praise God, Jesus loved like Jesus loved. Or I wouldn't be standing here today Physically or definitely not spiritually. May we be found as a people and as a church doing that. Loving that way. 
this week at MCs. We'll look at some practical ways we can do this. I thought that was how the sermon was going to go. I thought it was going to be a very practical sermon. We can just put some hands on this. Let's do this. I am going to give you some that I want you to write down if you're taking notes. If not, I'll try to include them in the questions. Uh, but I'll give you the scripture reference as well. But as we do these, and I, I'm literally just going to read them really fast. I want you to think about how Jesus exemplified them. And then how, as he exemplified them, we can exemplify him in doing this. Because here's the thing. The Bible doesn't give a lot, some, but not a lot of specific practical handles. It doesn't say make a meal train when someone has a kid. And yet, that's a way we can love people, right? One, put others first. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Number two, seek the good of others instead of being, oh, it could have been me, or jealous. Or That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. We forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Romans 12, 17 through 21. We give our time. James 1, 19 through 22. Let you catch up. We are generous. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. Number six, we make sacrifices that are actually costly to us. Because a lot of us like to make those sacrifices like, oh, I'm sacrificing. $10 ain't a sacrifice for you. You spend that on lunch every day. Make sacrifices that are costly to us. John 15, 13. Seven, pray for them, especially the ones you don't really want to pray for. Not, notice I didn't say including the ones you, especially the ones you don't want to pray for. Matthew 5, 44, James 5, 16. Number eight, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. This is amazingly huge and a missed point of life. Romans 12, 14, and 15. And then the last one, bear another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2. May we as a people and as a church be ready to answer the bell, though, when we are commanded to love, because it is so much harder than it sounds. It sounds super easy. Well, I love everybody. If you're a type person like me, and I'm not patting someone on the back, like, I just get along with everybody. I'm just kind of, I feel like I do anyway. Some of you may be thinking differently. I don't know. But... I feel like, you know, but that's not the same. That just means I don't make you mad or you don't make me mad. Maybe we just have a higher tolerance for anger. That's not loving someone. That's getting along with somebody. That's not the command here. The command to love everyone is much harder than it sounds. It takes on a whole new meaning when you have children because what would you not do if you're a good parent? What would you not do for your children? Because you love them. You would do anything for them, correct? That's the command. May we take the mentality of I will do anything to express my love for my kids and extend that to everyone. As we have seen this week, our lives can end unexpectedly. And in an instant, with no preparation that it's time to go, so may we spend our lives pouring it out for the sake of the gospel so that when it is our time to go, others can be sad, but you won't be. May we do this with a true and abiding love for God 
And then may we abide in the light so that our love for others shines brightly to a lost and dying world in order to bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. And then pray that those people then become family. Because in context, this command here from John is technically your brothers in Christ. The word brother there means brother. Like, it, it, there's no, oh, in the original language, it actually means, this. no, it just means brother. Like, the same word for biological brother, Jacob and Esau were brothers, is the same word used here. So it's saying we are all family, and that is where it starts. Absolutely. We must start here by loving one another well, then loving other Christians well, even if they're not part of our church. But Jesus himself and the whole Bible would extend that to include everyone. Including our enemies. And John is saying our first step should be to make sure we love our brothers. So clean your own house first. Because if not, how will we ever love our enemies, like Matthew 5.44 says, especially to the point of being willing to give our life for them as Christ did. Because remember, the command is to love like Jesus did. There are some of you in this room, I would like to say all, There are some of you in this room I would literally take a bullet for. But if you bring me my enemy and say, all right, you or him, I'm at least going to give it some thought. But that's not what Jesus did. He died for his enemies, Romans 5, 8. And that's the command we are given here. So first step today is look around the room and ask yourself an honest question. Do I love these people? Really? Not just like them or they're okay. Do I really love these people? I'm glad so many people are here today. Now take a proverbial look around your life and ask the same question. Do I love those people? Do I love the people around me that don't look like me and don't act like me? Because if the answer to either one of them is not a resounding yes, you may be blind and walking around in the dark and not even know it. May we be found loving God. May we be found loving each other and everyone with reckless abandon. And may we not be found asking what's in it for us. Because I can tell you the answer now, not much, except it'll all be worth it. Light wins. It always wins. Light overcomes the darkness. Jesus wins. May we be found in him loving like he loves. Let's pray.